Well, sometimes when I'm out and about, outreach, meeting people, if, if the conversation goes to spiritual things, uh, I'll often just quite simply say to people, what can you tell me about Jesus? And then I let them do the talking first. Usually what I hear is not too good, it, it's off, and after hearing them out, which I think is very, very important that we listen to people if we want to expect to have an audience with them, uh, I'll ask them if they could give me just a minute to explain about Jesus and what the gospel is. Now, some of you go, I could never do that in a minute. It's because you do not have these cards that we have out in the hallway, <laughs> right? And you can memorize it for the most part very quickly, maybe carry the smaller ones in your wallet, hand it to a person, and, and then you're able to share the good news with them. And then a lot of times, I realize it's a rapid-fire kind of presentation, I'll say to them, well, what is your reaction to that? And I'd love to say that they all fall on their knees in sack and sackcloth and ashes and say, oh, yes, I need to repent. But that's normally not the way it goes. Most begin talking about their opinions. They have more opinions about Jesus, and in particularly, they have opinions about Christians. Before you know it, they're talking with people about, uh, talking with you about their worldview, more political stuff than anything, uh, not their reaction to the the good news, or they start telling you that they're a good person or stuff like that. Uh, Today, the title of the message is Reactions to the Real Jesus, and that we see, oddly enough, in the first of trials that Jesus goes through after he's been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, known as the Jewish trial. So if you're taking notes, there is three points we want to get to today. One and two will be long. Number three will be short. So those of you who are thinking, when is he going to get done? You'll have a measure of confidence. So reaction number one, misinterpretation. Misinterpretation, verse 57 and those who had laid hold, of, uh, laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. So the, here you have all of the religious leaders, or a bunch of them, are there. Now, the trials of Jesus, as you put them together in the Bible, are a bit confusing in the four gospel accounts because they don't all contain, uh, contain the same information. Now, some people go, well, that's because they're inconsistent. But if they were all exactly the same, then people would say collusion, so I guess you can't win either way. So you have to piece them all together. That's because each of the Bible writers, uh, the gospel writers specifically, tell us the point of the story that furthers their emphasis, the part that they want us to really look at. So all the information they give us is correct, but it's not all included in each gospel. John emphasizes the Romans more. Luke emphasizes the morning events that are going to take place after what we're talking about right now. Matthew and Mark, as we'll see in Matthew today, more than what we call the the middle-of-the-night Jewish trials. Now, generally, we've talked about before, they're under Roman occupation, the Jews in Israel. Generally, the Roman Empire let countries, the countries that they controlled or that they ruled over, govern themselves to a point. In other words, they didn't get involved in a lot of the local little stuff. It made it easier for them, and it made it easier for the people in the countries that they had taken over. But they had to be very careful of something. They had to make sure that there weren't any anti-Roman government officials 
or anti-Roman sentiment that was allowed to rise up. So you can just imagine in the government there was probably tons of uh, payoffs and, and stuff like that. And they also decided to keep the death penalty for themselves. And they also reserved the right, the Romans reserved the right to walk in on any trial they wanted to if they believed that it was in the best interests of the empire. Now, the religious leaders, which always sounds very funny to say this, the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead for a variety of reasons. One of the gospel writers tells us it really came down to envy. They were afraid of the support that they had from the people, and if the Romans came in and and cleaned house, that they would lose their cushy jobs. And so the religious leaders have to frame Jesus in a way. They have to frame a a narrative that will uh, make the Romans want to kill Jesus. In other words, they, the religious leaders have to convince the Roman Empire or the Roman government that Jesus is a threat to the empire, and they're going to do that through misinterpretation, their own misinterpretation, and misrepresentation of who Jesus claims to be. Now, John tells us, Matthew doesn't tell us this, that the first stop actually was at the home of uh, Annas, the ex uh, High priest. Now, he may have lived in the same complex as Caiaphas. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. And, and so we get started here in verse 57. John gives us that one little detail. Matthew doesn't with a meeting of what we call the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was probably similar to our Supreme Court. So let's think of the Jewish Supreme Court. There was, some people say 71, some people say 72. Let's just say 70. So there's 70 religious leaders plus the, the high priests, although I don't know that our Supreme Court ever meets at 3 or 4 or 5 a.m. Do they do that? Yeah, it's a government job. They definitely don't do that. No offense to you who work for the government. We love the government. We love the government. And so, um, at least right now we do. Uh, so so they're, they're, they're there, and they appear before these people, but you only needed 23 people to be present for what's called a quorum. Those of you who've been on boards or voting organizations, you'll know a quorum means is the minimum number of people you need to have for a meeting to be valid. So maybe they went out in the middle of the night and they just got the you know, 23 guys that they knew would uh, support them. Now, Annas had been kicked out by the Roman Empire, and so uh, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was then appointed to be high priest, so that's why they might have lived in the same complex. These guys were crazy rich because of the schemes they were running at the temple. But Annas is still important and still has a lot of influence. Uh, these men were what we call Sadducees. We've talked about that in the future. Uh, the, we've, we've seen a lot of the people talking to Jesus were Pharisees. The Pharisees are the more religious group. The Sadducees were more, they were really rich, they were very political, and they were definitely in charge. So though, although they were a much smaller group, their influence was absolutely incredible. They were calling the shots. In fact, a very interesting thing is said in John eighteen fourteen. It says this, Now Caiaphas, that's the high priest, who advised the Jews. Now let's just stop there for one second, and we must remember this when we're talking to people about anti-Semitism. When the Bible talks about the Jews... Almost all the time it means the religious leaders. It's not talking about just Jewish people in general. It's talking about the religious leaders. And and so, so Caiaphas, who advised the Jews, the religious leaders, that it was expedient, another version says good, another says advantageous, that one man should die for the people. 
Now, that's very, very interesting because they didn't want trouble with the Romans. He says, why should we put up with this, you know, this instigator? He comes in, all the people are crazy about him. Let's just kill him, right? And then things will be good with the Romans. Why should, you know, this guy cause all this trouble for us? So he says that one man should die for the people. Does that sound familiar to you? That is the gospel. And as often is the case, God has an unbelieving person actually say the gospel but it is a misrepresentation and misinterpretation of the gospel. And so here you have two high priests, Caiaphas and Jesus, who have a completely different view of the gospel and a completely different worldview. Now, if you've been in church for any number of years, many people point out the illegalities in the trial. They weren't supposed to be done at night. Uh, if you decided that someone was guilty, you were supposed to take a day in between and come back again to make sure you all still felt the same way. There were certain rules of the interrogation, and you were supposed to have legal representation. Uh, the trial was supposed to be at the temple. It was not supposed to be on a holiday or a holiday evening. But many Bible scholars are quick to point out that those laws were published much later Uh, Although we don't know whether they were all in effect at this time, they may have just hid behind the fact and said this is an emergency situation. More than anything, as we talked about last week, we noticed the pace of the events. They are trying to move things along very, very quickly. They want to kill Jesus before all the crowds that are in town for the Passover who support Jesus begin to find out what's going on, and they might come up against them. So the pace is is very, very quick, and the irony is amazing. Remember, it's Passover week. That's the big holiday of the year for them. So basically, they're saying this. Let's kill God before we worship him at Passover. <laughs> and, and we have to kill God before we celebrate the Sabbath. So we're probably Thursday night going into Friday morning, and so they want to make sure they get rid of God so they can do what God told them to do. Now, this trial, and another verse I'm going to read in a second, has led to a lot of anti-Semitism, and a lot of people cite Matthew 27, 25. After this trial, and also then that, is that happened after Pontius Pilate said to them, I wash my hands of this. I find nothing wrong in this man. I find no fault in this man. Why do you find no fault in him? Because there was no fault to be found. And, and this is what they said, Matthew 27, 25, these religious leaders. And all the people answered and said, this crowd that they had drawn, his blood be on us and on our children. Now, does that mean all the Jews? That's what some people think. Nazis had no problem selling that one. Some people think that. Is it just them? Is it some sort of a misinterpretation that people make about the Jews? Important to note about this, you say, well, how do you know it wasn't all the Jews? Um, The gospel writers, if you read them very carefully, do not indict all the Jews. In fact, they were Jews. (laughs) The the gospel writers, the apostles were Jews. And, And sadly, many people take some of these passages and they sin through their misinterpretation of the facts. Uh, To be honest, it was actually a relatively small group of Jews uh, and Romans uh, that had Jesus crucified, yet very interesting that we're told that Jesus died for the sins of the world. What does that mean? That means the finger points where? 
at all of us. If he died for the sins of the world, then there's no, there's no point in us blaming any one particular group because we're all guilty in that vein. Now, remember we said last week that the Lord Jesus is in control. It's still the case. The religious leaders and the Romans are just instruments as Jesus is driving towards the cross so we can have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven with God. Verse 58, but Peter, you always know, here we go, right? Whenever you see, but Peter, (laughs) it's not going to be great. After a very poor showing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember that? If you were here last week, you know, hundreds, maybe even a thousand people come out, you know, here pulls out his sword, you know, I'm going to fix it, right? And and he lops off some dude's ear, and Jesus is like, Oy vey, what are you doing? Why do I bring you anywhere? <laughs> and so Jesus you know, fixes the guy's ear up, and, and so uh, it says, But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Well, in one sense, we should give Peter a little bit of credit. He, he followed. He followed. John tells us that another of disciples was with him. Typically, when a disciple is not mentioned in a a positive sense, it is the disciple who's writing, so it was probably John himself. But yet it says, Peter followed at a distance. You see, there's a problem with that statement. The problem is this, is is that following Jesus at a distance or being a semi-follower of Jesus doesn't work for Jesus. And and it's certainly not going to work for you, and it's certainly not going to work for me. We might put it this way in in our American way of thinking. I want to keep all of my options open. So I'm not going to commit to following Jesus, I'm not going to. I'm not going to go, you know, too far in advance, too far after Jesus. I'm just going to, you know, put my toe in the in the pool, so to speak. And remember that the apostles are representative followers of Jesus, and so we're thankful at the times when they're not so good at it. Um, but it's important to remember that Jesus calls all of his followers to be all in. He, he says. In Revelation, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I vomit you out of my mouth. Now, some people would say, my Jesus would never talk like that. Well, I agree, yours wouldn't. He doesn't exist. <laughs> the real Jesus does talk like that. He, he wants us to be all in. And Jesus, this may be a shock to you, but Jesus doesn't want to just be a part of your life. Jesus wants to be all of your life. And, and to think that we can play in the middle To think that we can follow him at a distance is actually our own misinterpretation of Jesus, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, how Jesus calls us to live and to follow him. Verse 59, now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council, again the religious leaders, sought false testimony. Another version says false testimony evidence against Jesus. Let's just stop there for one second. You know, it's very interesting. When somebody testifies falsely in court, we're supposed to do, the court's supposed to do what? Prosecute false testimony. These guys are not only not going to prosecute false testimony, um, they're they're looking for it. (laughs) They're providing it. They're hiring out, you know, you know, rent a liar or something like that. And so, and so it says they, they sought 
false testimony against Jesus, and he tells us why. To put him to death. Verse 60, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, he just picture him like, whew, finally. Two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. So Jesus is guilty before proven innocent. They're not even going to give him a chance to be proven innocent. In the eyes of the religious leaders, Jesus is already guilty. It's not a matter of proving the facts. The goal is quite simple. They want to, says it right here, at the end of verse 59, to put him to death. So what are they trying to do? They're trying to make it look legal. They want to have a good, a good face to put on for the, for the public, and they need two false testimonies. That's the, that's the law. They need two testimonies to agree. They're, they're, they're fine if they're false testimonies, but they have a big problem. The liars can't even agree. That's often the case, isn't it? Ever talk to people who lie about a situation, they, they just completely can't agree. And, and maybe the liar, some of the liars are just people who misrepresent Jesus, and that happens a lot in our day, and they just confuse everyone. So clearly, uh, there is no intention of a fair hearing. And this, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're very, very glad that you're here. And, and those of us who are followers of Jesus would say that one of you, I understand that you would have a lot of faults with us. I get that. That's fine. I'm happy to talk to you about that stuff. But, um, but a lot of people, they don't even want to hear anything about it. They don't want a fair hearing from us because their mind is already made up. Don't confuse me with anything like that. I'm, I'm not open to hearing anything. So they're, they're trying to tell what Jesus did wrong and they can't. They can't. Jesus said in one part of the Gospels, which of you accuses me of sin? And everybody's like, oh, I don't do anything. Huh? I don't even know what he's talking about. And really, instead of trying to accuse Jesus of some false sin, wouldn't you think it would be better time invested trying to figure out who he really is? That God himself actually became a man? So let's look at Verse 61 again. So finally, two false witnesses came forward and, and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. That is a total distortion and misrepresentation of what Jesus said. You said, what did he say? Well, in John chapter 2, Jesus has cleansed the temple. Now, people debate, did he do it more than once? And I kind of think he did. I think he did it early in his ministry, and I think he did it at the end. But it doesn't really matter for this, for our purposes right now. In John 2, verse 18, it says this. So, So the Jews, religious leaders, answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? In other words, who do you think you are? (laughs) <laughs> that you come in here and you're overturning the tables, you know, in our bingo game. I mean, you can't do that because they had a good thing going financially. Verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, what is he talking about? Well, we know that when he talks about the temple, he's talking about this, destroy this temple. That's what they did on the cross And in three days, that was the time he spent in the grave, and I will raise it up. There's Easter morning. Verse 20, then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. 
Are they talking about the same thing? They're not talking about the same thing. So John correctly interprets it for us, and John writes this, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has said. So here they are at the trial, though, but this was a long time ago. Here they are at the trial. Nobody cares about what Jesus meant. They just want to twist it. There's like, hey, listen, Jesus was disrespectful to God, and he was threatening the temple. And even the Romans had a law that if you, they kind of let it, you do your own religion as long as you behave yourselves. But if you threaten to desecrate or destroy any kind of a temple, that that could be considered a capital offense. And so they're trying to say that's what Jesus was doing. So they claim that Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple. That is not what Jesus said. He did not say, I am able. They added that in. They misrepresented or they misinterpreted what Jesus said, and so they add to it. Jesus said, destroy this temple, talking about himself, and they will destroy the temple of Jesus' body by crucifying him on the cross. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus did prophesy that the temple would be destroyed, and that actually did happen a long time after Jesus was gone in in 70 AD by the Romans. So is Jesus in control? Once again, yes, he's in control. The proceedings will lead to the destroying of Jesus, of his temple and the cross and the resurrection. So the absolute, it's interesting, the absolute best testimony that they can come up with so far is a misinterpreted and misunderstood metaphor. (laughs) Jesus is, is talking to them in a metaphor about his body And the best they can come up with is, well, this is what we think he meant. This is what we think that it was. But the reality is this. And again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is is so important to know this about Jesus. The temple was supposed to be great, but it became corrupt. And so Jesus brought what was supposed to be the greatness of the temple wherever he went. Wherever he went. That's why the the beauty of the Holy Spirit living inside a believer is we can bring the beauty of Jesus wherever we go. We don't have to, you know, go over and meet one man in Israel. And so Jesus brought that to the earth. The religious leaders had perverted it. So God himself uh, had perverted the temple and the God himself and the person of Jesus of Nazareth brought the temple to the people so you could know God, so you could know his love, so you could have the forgiveness of sins and you could have eternal life. That's what people need to understand. But unbelief darkens their hearts. Religion darkens their hearts because religion is all about what? What we do, not about what Jesus does and is one massive misinterpretation and misrepresentation. Well, reaction number two is hatred. Reaction number two is hatred, verse 62. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? (laughs) Simple word, lies. But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, 
I put to you under oath by the living God. Now Jesus knows, okay, that means I'm going to have to answer him. I can't, I can't not answer him. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, when we hear that, we have a different thinking of that. Some people, if you say, you know, you are the Christ, that means the Messiah. A lot of people understand that. But it's this terminology of the Son of God. If you talk to a lot of people back then, that was terminology that was often used of kings, the son of the beloved. And so sometimes kings would be re- referred to as that. So that could be what Caiaphas means. If you talk to a lot of people today, if you say, do you believe Jesus was God? And they'll say, no, I believe he was the son of God. Like, like one day, you know, God decided, you know, it's lonely up here in heaven. I think I'll have a baby, right? <laughs> and, and sent the Holy Spirit to meet Mary and say, God wants a baby. You know, would you, would, you, would you carry him and birth him? But son of means nature of. So, so I have two sons, and they are the nature of me. So son of means nature of. So, so son of God, mean, it really the terminology means equality with God, as Jesus is going to explain it. But a lot of times they would think it would mean somebody like a King David. King David would be called a Messiah-type figure. He was their greatest king, and, and he was a beloved of the Lord. He was a son of God. Now, it's very interesting. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus wouldn't fight. Remember, he said, I could call down 12 legions of angels. I'm going to pass on that one. And here he won't speak. Why? Because he's in complete control. Jesus has come to this trial not to vindicate himself. He has come to this trial because he's going to die on the cross, and he's not going to talk his way out of it. Now, if you're new to the Bible... We saw in when Jesus was meeting with the guys in the temple, all the religious brains were coming to him. Jesus is quite a talker, right? He gets a few simple words. He just, gets, he just sends the people away with their tails between their legs. They think they're so smart. But Jesus is also fulfilling prophecy from about 700 years earlier. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. This is what one Bible commentator called sovereign silence. God is sovereignly in control of the events while he is being silent. So Jesus knew this was coming, but he also knew that their hatred was so deep-seated, it wouldn't matter what he said, they're just going to twist it. Now, before you go out and you say, well, I'm not going to tell people certain people I know about Jesus because they're, they're just going to twist it, Jesus knows who's going to twist it, and you and I don't. Jesus also knows who's going to eventually come to to him, and you and I don't. And just a quick show of hands. How many of you would consider yourself an enemy or a mocker of Jesus or a mocker of Christians before you became a Christian? Just a quick show of hands. Oh, uh, yeah, that's most of us. The rest of you are like, I don't want him to know. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I know, I see it in your face. <laughs> right? and, and so, and so we, don't, we don't know, so we're not, gonna be, we're not going to be uh, like that and not tell people. And interesting, because in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember, Jesus fought the battle in prayer, and he knows that the cross awaits him, so there's nothing to say. He's just going to say, you know what, fine, find me guilty. That's the plan. That, that's, I'm okay with that. But the high priest is completely frustrated with Jesus. I mean, he is just looking at him. They can't find anything really wrong with him. 
and 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 it's nothing that really going to make anything stick. Maybe we could tell the people he's you know the Romans he wants to destroy our our shrine, our temple. But they may be like, eh, you know, we don't want to bother with that one. There's too much trouble in Israel as it is. We'll, we'll you know we'll throw him in jail for a year or two, and then we'll let him out or something like that. So the high priest actually goes for it. This is this is the guy not leaving anything on the field. He actually goes for it, and he says, I put you under oath by the living God. So what's he doing here? He is forcing the outcome. He is forcing the outcome. If Jesus refuses to answer, he broke a legal oath request. He can't do that. If he denies it, Jesus' mission is over. If he says yes, no one will believe him because, because to them the Messiah was a King David-like conquering king. But if, but if he can get him to answer this question, yes, maybe this will be enough for the religious leaders to go to the Romans and say, he thinks he's like King David. He thinks he's going to conquer you and everybody else and kick everybody out of our land. I also find it very interesting that Caiaphas is completely informed on the claims of Jesus Christ. I mean, he knows exactly what the people think of Jesus, what the people have been calling Jesus. Makes you wonder how many informants did he have out there around the audience. I mean, they, he probably just didn't walk around like anything. Or, or did, he, did he grill Judas about what Jesus was saying and what the people were saying about Jesus. And maybe he, you know, Judas relayed that conversation that he had with Peter. You know, Peter, who do people say that I am? All we, all we know is that Jesus is clearly on the radar. He's not going under the radar. He doesn't even have a desire to go under the radar. So verse 64. I, I, I want to read it twice. This is one of those verses where the world seems to stand still. Now, I know you don't want to admit that you were mocked-out Christians before you became one. Now I'll even have more of one you probably won't want to admit to. Will any of you admit to being X-Men fans? The movies, X-Men. Yes. Oh, even some of the ladies. Love Love you girls, right? Okay. This is like one of those moments when Quicksilver... You know him, right? The, he is so fast, what happens is it seems like the world stops while he runs around and fixes everything, like people are shooting people and he rearranges bullets and stuff like that. And it just seems like the world just seems to stop at this moment. Caiaphas has asked the question. You could imagine the guys in the room going, oh, oh, I can't believe he asked him that. So I'm going to go through it twice. Jesus said to him, verse 64, It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and, of the, and coming on the clouds of heaven. So let's go slowly. Jesus said to him, It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, that word is plural. Once again, Jesus has a teachable moment. <laughs> he's on trial, and he's going to teach the entire courtroom. Hereafter, in the future, then Jesus gives what we call a composite citation from Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 from hundreds of years earlier, 
Hereafter, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. It's a great name of, for God, isn't it? Just power. <laughs> right? Just power. What, what, what do you call God? I just call him power. And coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, Daniel chapter 7 talks about this figure called the Son of Man who comes from the throne of God in heaven to judge the world. That's, that is far beyond some guy who's going to come and form an army and kick the Romans out. And the clouds of heaven is often associated with, we think of you know the clouds, it's a cloudy day or something like that, but the clouds of heaven is often associated with the glory of God or the Shekinah glory of God. So what is Jesus claiming right here to them? He is claiming deity. Okay, I'm coming, I'm the guy, I I sit with the power and I'm going to come back and I'm going to judge the world. Interesting, Caiaphas is so full of anger. He's so full of hatred. He has already said, I think one guy should die for the entire nation. And so he asked this question. You could just picture the, just the fire coming out of his nose. You know, I'm going to ask you a question. I ask you in the name of the living God. And Jesus casually goes, yep, it's as you said. You got it. You got it. But let me clarify something a little bit for you. Jesus says, more, because the high priest, who is the top religious leader in the entire land, doesn't understand the meaning of the words. <laughs> he takes an earthly meaning to those words, a guy they want to come and be their king and deliver them, and ask Jesus if that's what he is. And friends, that's the way many people are with today. And you know, a lot of people are just, not, we, say, we just tell people, oh, just read your Bible. And they go, I did. 12 sentences in, I was like, no wonder these people are nut jobs. Nobody understands what this book means. Jesus says, in effect to him, your terminology is right. That's why it's important for us to say to people, I understand what, what you just said. Tell me what you mean by what you just said. Pretend I have no idea about Christianity at all. I just got off the boat from a deserted island. I've never heard of God or anything like that. You talk to missionaries, they go to some places, they go, what do you think of God? They go, who's God? Never heard of him. Never heard of him. And so you say, you know, it's important to say to people, tell me what that terminology means to you. So in effect, he says to the high priest, your terminology is right, but what you think those words mean is totally wrong. And dude, you're the high priest. (laughs) You guys are the religious leaders. Pastor Jim, are you saying it's possible that religious leaders don't really know much about God? Yes. Dare I say perhaps even most of them. Perhaps even most of them. A lot of people say, well, all we learned about in in our training was how to resolve conflict. (laughs) People say that. when When I pastors say that to me, I just say, listen, you want to resolve conflict? Just let Jesus hammer them with the Bible and tell them to obey and just tell them to love one another. And guess what? A lot of people will do it. (laughs) A lot of people will do it. See, to Caiaphas, Christ or Messiah and Son of God probably meant the same thing. 
Again, someone like King David, Jesus says, hey, man, it's, it's as you said, I am all that, but I'm a lot more. I'm that and a lot more. Jesus begins and says, I'm not what you think. We might say uh, Jesus is not the generic God of our culture. You know, people say, I believe in God. Then your answer now is, what do you mean by God? That's what you say. Explain God to me. Well, you know, God, God, God. (laughs) Capital G or a little g? What's the difference? Ah, okay, (laughs) that's the difference. And so he's explaining himself to him. He's saying, I am the God to them. He's saying, I am the God of Bible prophecy. A lot of people will say in our day and age, I'm you know, God, the God who created everything. We have to go back further than Jesus had to go back. And they'll say, well, I believe in science. And your answer will be, well, where did it all come from? I don't know. Jesus says, I am the eternal king. Jesus sees the future. He sees the cross and the resurrection. He sees his ascension into heaven and being seated at the right hand of God or at the right hand of the power. He sees the founding of the first century church. He sees the church age. He sees you. And he sees his second coming. So it's an amazing scene. Two high priests together in the room. Two men who judge One who judge now and one who judges for eternity. Whose side do you want to be on? He tells them, you're not going to see me for a long time. They're like, we're going to kill this guy. He ain't never going to see us again. Jesus says, no, the next time you see, I'll be coming to judge you. The next time you see me, I will be coming to judge your eternal destiny And everybody who judges Jesus incorrectly, everybody who hates Jesus, everybody who is indifferent to Jesus, everybody who is half-hearted about Jesus will be judged by Jesus for their sin. Jesus is standing there. He's arrested. And he says to them, essentially, you know, here's the funny thing that's going on here. You think you're the judge but I'm the judge. You think I'm on trial, but you're the one who's on trial. You think you have power? I have power, the likes of which mankind has never seen before. Now, you might be sitting here today and you're saying, oh, no, oh, no, what what does that mean for me? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, we have the same confidence that Abraham had in Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all earth do right. Not not because we're good people, but because we put our trust in what Jesus has done on the cross. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes. That's an act of absolute horror. We don't know how much of this is show and how much of this is actually, he feels this way, saying he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? He's like, forget about the law, this is it. This is it. He says, look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is language that insults God. It's using his name, his sacred name that we, for them it was using his sacred name that we translate Yahweh, using his name in vain, speaking wrongly about him, 
misrepresenting him. Again, now some of you are going, see, that's why I don't talk to people about Jesus. I don't want to misrepresent him. <laughs> Get the card. Get the blue, right? They also come in brown, right? And then you, by the same token, you'd be surprised what you do know once you start opening your mouth. You know, like we always tell the students, we can't expect God to pull out of us what we don't already put in. Sometimes you remember when when the students came up to me and they said, you know, I've got exams tomorrow and would you pray that I do well? It was a Sunday night. I said, did you study? They said, no. I said, well, let's pray for snow. (laughs) Only problem, it was June. (laughs) So God's not going to, God's, we got to put it in. And then when you least expect it, right, you start talking and you're talking and you're going like, wow. I can't believe I know all this, or I can't believe this is coming out of me. And if you're, listen, you're probably like me. Half the time I'm like, I hope this is right. It's okay. So just keep it simple. I won't call you stupid. Keep it simple. (laughs) Verse 66. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Then they spat on his face. When you spit in somebody's face, what is that? That is, you despise someone. That is like the ultimate insult. And they beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands. Now, it's very interesting. What did Jesus tell us in the Sermon on the Mount? When someone slaps you in the face, turn the other cheek. Now, Again, we often say, do we believe the Bible literally? And we often say literal intent. So maybe somebody slaps you in the face. Do you turn the other cheek? You think, I'm I'm letting them abuse me. What if he's talking about insults? What if somebody insults you and your faith? Does Jesus want you to slap them back? Or maybe, does Jesus want you to turn the other cheek? And let them continue. And then your love and your standing by Jesus. Pray that it gnaws at them for the rest of their life. (laughs) Saying verse 68, Luke tells us that Jesus was blindfolded. Prophesied to us Christ, who is the one who struck you? In the mind of the religious leaders, despite the fulfilled prophecies and the miracles... Jesus has made a claim that no human can make. He thinks that he's God. But their hatred has blinded them. They were never looking for the truth. They were never looking for justice, only a guilty verdict. They're actually glad at what he said. That's why I said I don't know how, how the, tearing of the tearing of the clothes by Caiaphas, I don't know how, you know, you know, how real that is, how legitimate that is. A, a Bible scholar named uh, Pate, what a terrible last name. Uh, a Bible scholar named Pate said, They spit on Jesus to deny his authority. They hit him to deny his power. And they blindfolded him to prove that he was no prophet. And whether it's done physically to Jesus' followers today, verbally or mentally, Jesus knows who spits on him and who hates him. 
And he also knows who turns the other cheek. Well, very quickly, number three, reactions to the real Jesus. Number one was misinterpretation or misrepresentation. I would say that includes hardness of heart, half-heartedness, and indifference. The second one was hatred of Jesus, which might include those things as well. Number three is reaction to the real Jesus is worship. Worship. Matthew's teaching us that, that Jesus is going to be, or showing us that Jesus is going to be sentenced to death because he makes himself out to be equal with God. That is the charge that they are going to levy him from the Jewish perspective. In other words, Jesus is going to be declared guilty for telling the truth. As Jesus often does, he drives each and every person in the room, that would include us, to an either-or choice. What does Jesus deserve? Death or worship? There's no in-between. There's no following at a distance. There's no half-heartedness. With Jesus, everything comes down to two choices. It's always one of two. Death or worship. My dear friends, that is the decision you have to make It is a decision that will not allow you to follow at a distance. It will not allow you to keep all of your options open. Sometimes we do that in a sense, but in terms of how Jesus is. In that way, and this is going to sound totally bizarre, but in that way, the religious leaders are more honest than a lot of people who call themselves Christians. At least they're honest enough to say which camp they're in, and they're really in it. Instead of saying, oh, no, we worship Jesus. You know, I go to church on Sunday morning. That is such a small percentage of one's life. So many people follow Jesus in a a compromised way. At least give those guys credit. We hate them, and we want to kill them. But we're not going to pretend You know, it's easy to to look at this and think that only the religious leaders sin. Because what do they do? They put themselves in the place of God and they judge him. Don't you really know that's ultimately what sin is? It's putting ourselves in the place of God. You think, oh, oh gosh, that's terrible that anybody would do that. We all do that. We all do that. We think that God led us to do something. We try it. It doesn't go the way we want it to go. Next thing you know, oh, we're going to quit. We're going to quit. What are you saying? Well, if God led me, he was wrong. Or we complain about situations that we're in that, you know, oh, God gave me this, God gave me this, and and then we complain about it. We blame God. You know, there's all kinds of things go wrong in this world. And then we blame God. Look at all the things that, it's funny that there's all these atrocities that happen in the world. It's not funny, it's pathetic. There's all these atrocities that happen in the world. And how often do people blame God? How could God allow that to happen? Forget about the people who did it, right? All of a sudden, they're off free. Oh, it's God's fault. God did it. How often do we How often do we make demands of God? 
well, I'll do this if you do this. Don't bargain with him like that. Or maybe we try to make God pay with our own unbelief. But here's the beautiful thing. God did come and pay for our unbelief. He actually did. We blame him, which is sin, and he came and took the blame for us. Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins, and he left to be seated at the right hand of God. And you think, oh, good, he returned to a throne. Don't you see that the cross was his earthly throne? Honestly, loved ones, if you can see that, you will never be the same again. Never be the same again. When you see the king on a cross is actually the king on his throne. And he's ruling and he's drawing subjects to himself. And forgiveness of sins is offered to all who put their trust in him. Now I know some of you might say, I'm not a sinner. Ever hear anybody say that? I'm not a sinner. By the way, that's a sin saying that. (laughs) I'm not a sinner. I don't sin. But what did we just say? Sin is God, is, is ourselves substituting ourselves for God. What is salvation? On the cross, God substituting himself for us. That's what the Christian message is. That's what it's all about. Your reaction to Jesus will be a misinterpretation or hatred or worship. It will be your heart will be filled with gratitude for the offer of God's grace and the forgiveness of sins, or it won't be. So, Jesus said to Caiaphas, it is as you said. Before you leave this place today, what do you say? Who do you say he is? And will you worship him? Well, let's stand and pray.